Good morning, everybody. This is Steve with Roleplaying Degenerates. I have with me Guy, one of the best GMs of all time, and we're very excited to have him here on the podcast. Um, Guy, how are you doing this morning? I'm very good, thanks. And uh, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, thanks for asking. So how did you get started doing Dungeons & Dragons, or whatever you started first? No, it was indeed Dungeons & Dragons many, 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 many years ago uh, with the red box for Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. And um, it was uh, a bit of a... An experience, I would say, for, for, for all of us. We didn't really know what we were doing. And uh, if anyone remembers that ancient old box, uh, the very first adventure, there's a well outside the, the pre, pre-written uh, dungeon. And if you open up the well, there's a carrion crawler inside, and it killed my first character. And, yeah. uh, and that, was, that was my introduction to it. And ever since then, I've, I've been hooked. <laughs> So what was D&D like back then compared to uh, 5e now? I think that I come from a, a, a culture which is all about self-sustainability uh, and survival. I'm originally from South Africa, and so we were very, very isolated. There was no such thing as the Internet at all uh, when I first started playing. And, and so I always look back at those days where we were incredibly harsh on our on ourselves as players. I mean, my GM, we had to keep a running calendar, a physical calendar. Uh, if you said that you were going to cast a spell as a mage, and we're talking about wizards starting the game with two hit points <laughs> and one magic missile. There was no cantrip. There was nothing along, along those lines. Um, you you fired your magic missile and that was it. A house cat could literally kill you with one attack. Um, but if you said you're casting a spell, the DM would say, all right, what is the range? Uh, what components are you using? And how much damage is it? And if you couldn't say immediately to the DM what those values were, you couldn't cast the spell. Because the DM was like, well, if you don't know what those values are, how is your character going to know what those values are? Uh, there was no referencing or looking up or going, hang on just a second, let me check D&D Beyond and, and just see what what the range is or the area. You had to memorize that. So when people ask about AD&D and second edition AD&D, I have a pretty good knowledge of the first four levels of spells. Um, and even to this day, there are times where in fifth edition, my players will say, oh, I cast the spell and they'll go, what's the range on that? And I will instantly say, oh, it's 120 feet. Sure. For a game 20 years ago, uh, maybe not for today. Cause they've tweaked a lot of stuff. They've made the spells a lot more powerful now than they, than they used to be. But also I think when you look at it, AD and D and second edition D and D and even 3.5, was very much a we've got an idea and then every time they release a book they're just they're kind of building new ideas onto stuff so there were there were lots of times where they'd release a book and you'd go this this is just broken it really doesn't make any sense um or it adds so much or or it was really revolutionary in terms of how those games played. Whereas with fifth edition, we now have a much more controlled professional developmental plan. Uh, hopefully uh, I say this, uh, I don't sit in, in, in Wizards of the Coast, but uh, there is a much more uh, consolidated approach to releasing material. And when they release material, they go, okay, cool. This has supposedly been balanced against everything else. And the big buzzword the big difference I would say between role-playing in the eighties and the nineties and even the early two thousands versus role-playing today is balance. Everything has to be balanced. It's like, Oh, this class is balanced against that class. This class is balanced against in the old days. It was like, no, no, the paladin, if you can be absolutely lawful, good is pretty damn impossible to kill. Or there's the, this who is pretty lethal or the ranger or the, etc. Um, so I think those are the, the, the bigger kind of differences. The, the, the thing that really makes me excited, though, is I still play the game exactly the same way that I have been playing it for the last 30 years. And when new people come in, they pick up and play it the same way as well, which is we're a bunch of heroes going on a quest to do cool and, and, and amazing things. Um, and that has... 
Yeah, so you just said it right there. We played uh, ANA two, three. Um, did did you um? Did you ever play Pathfinder by chance? I did play Pathfinder one, um, and I will be absolutely honest. I absolutely loved D and D three point five. I wanted Pathfinder to be the final role playing game ever made. I really love Pathfinder. Pathfinder was like D&D 3.75. I think what they did in Pathfinder was really, really cool. Uh, but again, we could see that with the Pathfinder guys, they were taking all of the experimental stuff that D&D 3 and 3.5 had been developing and could consolidate that into a more concise kind of book. So we got a much better role-playing uh, homogeny going on rather than what we were getting previously. Um, I played D&D 4th Edition, and I felt that 4th Edition was the first time that they actually took the role-playing away, because now all of a sudden I was focused on my cards and what actions I could do on a daily power or a combat power or this power and that thing. Um, and I, to me, it felt like we had moved away from role-playing, and now we had gone almost to a deck builder uh, than anything else. Uh, I'm glad that they did 4th Edition, because it allowed them to see a whole bunch of things that could work and that did work, and then there are a whole bunch of things that did not work. And then we got 5th edition, which I think was, was taking the best of 4th and 3.5 and kind of mushing them together. Not changed. Yeah, so how come you never hear about 4th edition? It's like the whispered one. It is the whispered one because 4th edition, when I look at 4th edition, it came out just after games like World of Warcraft were at their peak. You know, we were getting these news reports, over a million players playing World of Warcraft, and you had Guild Wars 2 coming out, you had Lord of the Rings MMO. So the MMO space had, had just exploded onto the scene and was just growing bigger and bigger. And I think that the guys at... at uh, Wizards, when they were looking at 4th edition, they said, okay, well, when you're playing an MMO, you have all of these key powers which you trigger off, and they have countdowns on them. How do we do that in, in Dungeons & Dragons? How do, we make it, how do we make it more equitable? But also, what they were doing in 4th edition was they were saying, okay, in 3.5, there was no codification of the abilities and the powers and there were there were lots of overlaps and you had dark vision and low light vision and, and normal vision and um, there was there was lots of muddling of terminology so in fourth edition they went okay let's codify everything so when we say dark vision it means all kinds of vision that are able to be used when there's no light we you know we'll abandon the 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 finesse stuff because it just muddles things around and also, it was a very short-lived edition of, of, of D&D. Mm -hmm. If you think, uh, 3.5 had been going for almost a decade. 2 had been going for a decade. 4th uh, came out, and I, don't, I personally don't know how long it was on 4, but certainly 4th came out, we bought some of the books, we played it once or twice, tried to get into it, and it was like, this just doesn't... I, I have more cards in front of me than I've got character sheet. I've got more of this. You know what? We're going to go back to 3.5 and just wait. And so they really tried to drive 4th edition. I mean, obviously, they spent a lot of money developing it, but it didn't go anywhere. So it, it very quickly got pushed aside for 5th edition. Um, and, and so I think that's why, you know, when 2nd when edition was there, when 3 came out, there was a huge pushback. Why do we need it? Second edition is fine. Weapon proficiencies, non-weapon proficiencies are perfect. And Thaco is amazing. We love calculating reverse numbers because, you know. But once we moved over to three, we realized, oh, hang on, it actually is a better system. With four, it didn't offer enough to warrant abandoning three. It didn't kind of bring new things that were really fun to the table. Um, and I think that's why it, it, it just gets forgotten about. Yeah, when you look at the grown popularity of 5e, you know, in the last few years, I think Wizards of the Coast themselves said they have a 66% um, increase in sales since 2017. Um, what do you attribute that to? That's a very big question as to, to what does one attribute it to. You know, I get to travel around the world quite a lot now that COVID's over as well. Well, it's almost over. Um, and I ask that question to a lot of people. 
what made Dungeons and Dragons explode the way that it did. And to be honest with you, I definitely think it was the rise of the YouTube and Twitch live play games. I think that started to make it more accessible um, so people could see what was going on, they could hear what was going on. Uh, and at the same time, obviously, we started to see um, um, TV shows like Big Bang Theory first and then um, Stranger Things. And there were a couple others that it's kind of featured in, in the background. But uh, because of the huge popularity of those shows, people went, oh, what is this D&D thing? Let me go check it out. And then they could go to YouTube or Twitch and actually see people playing it. Um, and and could kind of realize, oh, actually, I can get into this. Because if you think about it, before, I want to say like 2012, yes, there were games on, but the technology was so difficult for, for us. You know, we had things like Skype, but it wasn't yet as slick and as good looking as it currently is. We didn't have very good webcams. Setting up microphones was expensive. So the barrier to entry to production was huge. And now everybody has Skype and Zoom and a webcam and a decent microphone and a headphone because we have to as a species in order to be able to work. So it's a lot easier. Um, and so I, that, that for me, I think, is, is the rise of it. And I think also, I mean, when I was in high school, my books were confiscated because they were obsessed. My, my school counselor was obsessed that it was a whole Satan-worshipping uh, mm. event. We talk about the Satanic Panic in the 80s, you know, and I think that lingered for a long, long, long time. And now that was 30, 40 years ago, and it's like no one remembers. And now everyone kind of goes, yeah, and that was just stupid. You know, the, the actual events that took place were debased or they were, you know, we realized there was more to it than just a bunch of people playing AD&D. Um, and, and, yeah, so I, I think it's a collaboration of things. Um, but really, it's just, it's so much easier to access, uh, you know. So when you first started playing, did you keep all that to yourself with the satanic panic and, you know, um, all those negative connotations that went along with it? Look, I also grew up in a really small town, so it was really easy to keep it to myself. No one else kind of cared, but definitely uh, we were the, the library kids um, in the school. And while everyone else was busy playing sport and uh, doing all the, the, that sort of stuff, we were sort of hidden away in the library. So uh, it was very much a, this is a geek space. You know, and we were all the ones who were doing computer science, which in those days was programming and things like DOS and, well, even earlier than that, Pascal and, and, and stuff. So um, definitely it was the basement guys who were playing it. And uh, I even remember maybe now, this was only 15 years ago, I would have players sitting at my table who are business executives and, you know, they'd leave all their stuff at my house. And I'd say, well, why don't you take it home with you? Oh, no, 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 no. My wife can't know that I play <laughs> D&D. So I'm like, well, what, do you, what does she think you're doing for five hours? Yeah. Oh, I just tell her we're playing sport or we're watching something or, or whatever. So there was definitely that, 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 that culture. I think it's getting less and less um, as, as we starting to see people kind of going, well, this is my gaming den and it looks as good as any, uh, sports watching den, you know, uh, I think it's getting less now. Yes. D and D is growing in so much popularity that you're seeing jocks, um, play the game that necessarily wouldn't play this game before, um, me and my friends, uh, with role playing degenerates, we personally met, um, playing in the uh, army on a detachment. Um, and we even have people who identify as non-binary who play this game. I interviewed um, someone and they identify as non-binary. So this game is really inclusive. And, and when you get into that... That's, it. I, that's what I love about it as well, is, is exactly that. Um, I'm actually giving a talk to a software development company in June Um they're a global company and they do these kind of corporate things and they invited me to go there to talk about inclusivity in role-playing um, because a lot of their, their developers and things are, are gamers, 
uh, and role-playing gamers as well. Um, and, and so I think you actually said it. It's about when you sit down at the table, I don't really care about what you do in real life. I care about what your character is doing now. But at the same time, it is such a collaborative team effort to slay the dragon, to overcome the obstacle, to try and figure out the puzzle, that there is a, a very strong bond, I think, that forms between players, especially if you can get around the table. Um, and what that then transcends into is once the game is over, then you start talking to the person and you start, you, you go, you're a great dwarf. So what do you like in real life? And as much as we like to talk about role play as, oh, my character would do this, when we're in crises, we're no longer role-playing. It's just what we would do. So it's a, it's, a very, it's a very safe space to express what you might um, be feeling inside or who you might be because you can always step back and go, oh, no, it's not me. It's my character. But at the same time, what I've certainly experienced from, from playing with different groups is that it's almost a, I'm going to test and see what these people think. And if, 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 so if my character wants to wear feminine armor, even though it's a male character, or if my character wants to be a cat instead of a this or whatever, you can explore that and kind of see that your, 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 your friends are okay with it. And so it, it gives you a gentler entry into having those conversations and being free to, to express yourself and be who you want to be, uh, which is remarkable. And, and, um, I was at a, a, a gaming club two weeks ago giving a talk, and the club is very much designed to be a safe space for anybody to come and play. And they've even got gaming rooms where they've got gaming rooms for people who may have things like ADHD or some kind of focusing issue where the room is being kept absolutely neutral and there's like white noise that's played in there so it creates this very very comfortable space and you're going that is that's phenomenal that that's just helping us express and, and be ourselves without all this external noise that we get from from social media yeah i, I just wanted to bring up the point that um i had an interview with with a um, person who identifies as non-binary and they actually got a grant via their university that they went to um, to utilize Dungeons and Dragons as a technique to help adolescents through, you know, hard times in life. Um, so this is, you know, th this is a game that does so many things for so many people and it, and it has that inclusivity and everything. Um, and you can do so many things in the game. When I was in the military playing with my friends, um, we had those classical jock types when we played together, but, you know, we also had clerics. I always wanted to be a cleric. I thought, that was fun to be in the back. Um. Absolutely. And I, I have the fortunate, I'm in the fortunate position, I should say. I have a lot of veterans who, who watch the show and, and, and who participate. And I will never forget, I had one viewer who was on active duty. I don't know where in the world, but it was a desert somewhere. And it was a live Q&A, and he joined us via satellite phone whilst in a foxhole. Um, and I said, oh, should you really be doing this? Shouldn't you be watching for the enemy? And he's like, no, 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 we're like seven miles from the front, and they're a reserve unit or a whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, but a lot of people, whether you're a veteran or, 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 you know, or, or, or whatever, it's it's a great space to to unwind as well, and I think that's that's what a lot of people are realizing is it's like it's not just geeks playing numbers. It's it's a fundamental, mentally engaging activity. Yep, yep. I I used to have this really silly rule where I would tell my players as a DM you could not align, um, you couldn't have alignments more than two sections apart, meaning you couldn't be lawful good. And you know, chaotic evil. Um, but then I changed my mind on that because if you play long enough with, with a certain group, or it's one, or where it's six or twelve sessions or a year, you'll find out that the alignments don't matter, and people gain relationships in this game um, no matter what. And you might, you know, murder someone you weren't supposed to murder, but then you might also save a princess. 
um, on the same token. I, I think it's it's a good sign that that people can do that. Uh, you're absolutely right, though. We need information this person. We will kill them to get it. And you're going, that is not a good act on any <laughs> level. It's not a lawful act on any level. Um, but then in the next breath, the little shopkeeper who you have put a little old lady accent on, they will defend her to the ends of the you know the campaign type of thing. And you're like, well, that's a very good act. Um, uh, okay. I, so, yes, you, you, you're right. I, I and again, I think this ultimately comes back to us as humans is that we genu generally want to do the right thing. Um, but because it's role playing, sometimes we get to, to, to be a little bit dark and a little bit evil and, and sometimes just just punch the bad guy and go, you know what, I actually feel good about that, even though I shouldn't really, but I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. What is your favorite NPC you've ever played and your favorite PC you've ever played and why? Wow. Okay. PCs, I'll start with that one because that's fairly easy. Um, I have never played a PC in a campaign. Uh, the longest I've ever played a PC for would be about six months. And that was in 1996, I think, uh, because that was, a, that, was, that was my entry in. And then... Uh, I became the DM, and I have been a forever DM. And then when I do play, it's usually in a one shot, or it's a, it's a, it's a whatever. So uh, that character, his name, I still remember his name. He was Belenran, uh, a wizard. He was an evoker wizard. This was second edition D and D, and he was a militant evoker. So as they built D and D up, they kind of went, oh, we can make more and more and more. So militant evoker meant that he could use claymore, a long sword. Um, and cast magic at the same time. And I thought that was absolutely brilliant because I kind of wanted to recreate Gandalf, uh, who had his sword and his magic. Um, but poor old Belenran, the way that that worked in, 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 in second edition was that he couldn't hit anything and his magic was, was weak anyway because he was a wizard. So he was just a very ineffective character. But I had a lot of fun playing him uh, and still remember him to this day. I mean, that was, you know... Like I said, 1996. Um, in terms of NPCs, I have a character called Alad. And Alad started out as a prison guard who was not meant to be important whatsoever. But one of the player characters decided they were going to try and convince Alad to let them out of prison. And so they started asking Alad personal questions, which... Uh, I know for a lot of DMs sometimes can be a little bit scary because it's like, well, I haven't prepped anything. I love doing that. It's one of my favorite things is to create NPCs on the fly because I just let my mind go freely in all different directions. Um, and it's something I talk about on my channel is how to do that so that you don't uh, kind of blank out. And a lad, he got his name because when he was born... He, his dad held him up and went, oh, look, it's a lad. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that was because I was like, I don't know why his name is a lad, because he's a lad. Okay, so then that's probably <laughs> what his dad said when he was born. So that's how he got his name. And uh, But people loved a lad so much because he was just, he was absolutely honest. He was absolutely dedicated to fulfilling the mandate of his orders to the letter which ironically allowed the player character to escape from prison because he hadn't been ordered to prevent the, the player character from unlocking the cell door. He'd been ordered from preventing the player character from escaping. And so the player character could open the, the cell door and then he could move around the room because, again, he wasn't escaping. Um, and then at some point something happened and uh, a lad ended up actually joining the party as a perma NPC, uh, wandering around just being this big heavy muscle. But they had to make sure to give him very specific orders because otherwise they'd come back, you know, guard the treasure well, for him, the treasure was the flower, not the box of, of gold type of thing, you know. So, uh, but Alad now features almost invariably in any game I run uh, just because people, people really get a kick out of him. Isn't it funny how you create a character for, you know, your group to meet and they, they don't even want to meet it, but then when you think of something on the fly, that 
had nothing to do with it. It ends up being a world breaker in your campaign. It's funny how that always works out. Exactly, exactly. And that was the the mind shift that I had last year. You know, I've, I've written a couple of books on, on, on um, being a GM. And my very first one was plan stuff out, have quite a structured approach to, to running your game, um, but be malleable in terms of how you execute it. My new book, which is the, the PDF literally came out yesterday, um, is all about don't plan anything because your players are going to be doing everything. They're going to be the ones who decide who they want to talk to. So when you have a tavern, you as the DM, you know that in a tavern you need to have a barkeep, you need to have probably a barmaid or a barman who's going to be wandering around serving drinks. There might be a bard in the corner and maybe there's some people in there. You kind of already know that when you're setting the scene. If the players are the ones going up to the barman saying, hey, have you heard any rumors? Well, you only need to create the barman as they say that. Because if you spend time creating that barman and the players go, right, we get up out of the tavern and we leave, we're going to go and talk to the sheriff. As you say, you've wasted all of your time and it, it would be bad for, for you to say, oh, well, the door's locked. You have to talk to the people in this room. So then they're going to go off and talk to the sheriff. But if you haven't planned for the sheriff, that's not a problem because when they get there, you just make the sheriff up or wherever they're going or whatever it is that they're doing. So, uh, but you're absolutely right. Uh, it is amazing how it's the ones you never suspect that are the ones that they fall in love with. Yeah, it's funny how that always works out like that. Um, another thing I wanted to talk to you about was uh, you actually got me into DMing um, for the first time uh, because, uh, you know, as people might not know, you actually ran um, Descent into Avernus for um, uh, D&D, not D&D Beyond, for Wizards of the Coast, right? That, I was, right? that's correct, yes. Yeah, so, yeah, so, so there was a guy that I was in the military with, and it was his first time DMing. Um, and my second time ever playing. And in that game, um, the new DM picked up Descent into Avernus as a module, and we decided to play it. But he was way too you know, relaxed on players. I wasn't a huge fan of that. I like when things are more strict. And um, yeah, for that game, it, it, just, it just didn't work out for me. And I wanted, I, you know, I kind of thought there has to be a better way than this. And if you look at <clears throat> some of your content, which is amazing, um, you can see things like your number one video that you have posted is um, how to GM your first game. So when you look at that video, like, what do you see about the reach of D&D and your influence on D&D and how many people just want to um, GM their first game? That's it. It's funny. People say to me, how did you start GMing? You know, what was your path? What was your journey? And that sort of thing. It was so long ago for me, I can't remember, but the only reason why was because there was no one else to do it. Uh, it was just me. And when you look at that, you go, we know in the community that it's probably a ratio of like one to eight or one to nine people want to DM out of a group of 10 people. The rest just want to play. And I have always said, I don't understand why. I find it so much more fun to be the DM than it is to being the player. What is the difference? What is that? Uh, and, and I think a lot of times it's a preconceived idea that we have to be these all-knowing, all-powerful beings that, that control and plan everything and do all this work and, and, and all that kind of stuff. There is a lot more work to do as a DM. Um, even to this day where, you know, I, I say, well, improvise, improvise, improvise for my game on Tuesday night, I still spent three hours drawing a map, but that's because I wanted to use a beautiful map that kind of really inspired the players. That was my personal choice. I wouldn't, didn't have to if I didn't want to. So when you look at people going, well, how do I start DMing? I think it really is, it's, it's the biggest first step you're going to take because once you've started, either you're going to love it or you're going to hate it, I think. Um, and, and so making sure that that start is really strong for me is very, very important. And that video, I think that was probably, I think that was one of my first videos that I ever released. I released that video specifically because I was attending a, a competitive D&D &D where we were being scored on how good a DM we were. 
And I had won that competition a couple times. And when we were signing up, there was a young GM who was going to sign up. He looked, he went, oh, are you in this competition? I went, yes. And he went, oh, well, then I'm out because there's no point. We can't beat you. <laughs> and I was like, no, that is not the point. I mean, okay, in the competition, it is the point, but that's not the point of role playing and Dungeons and Dragons and all that kind of stuff. There's, it's about having fun. Um, and, and then when I was talking to my friends, I was like, well, why don't you guys DM? And they've always been terrified of it. They're like, no, 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 no. There's way too much going on. There isn't. It seems like there is. Um, and, and I think that's as much as, we, you know, we were talking earlier about the good side of um, YouTube promoting the game and making the game more mainstream, there's been a strong downside as well, is that when you go online to watch people playing, unless you are watching someone who is just running a home game and it's not slick and polished, but if you're, if you're watching the big guys play they're sitting there with thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of production and, uh, you know, fully trained actors and performers and, and everyone is there putting on a show rather than playing D and D you get a very skewed kind of perspective of what the DM actually should be doing. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I, it, it's a big topic. I know I'm going to go back to it. Um, and that's my, my book, at the moment is called the practical guide to becoming a great GM. And the whole purpose of the book is to try and break down the role of the GM into something that's manageable so that you can go, okay, cool. I want a DM. What do I need to know? How do I need to do this? How do I create my own world? How do I, because the, I mean, that's what the whole channel is about is, is trying to help and support uh dms and things what competition are you speaking of there's is there a competition to rate a gm's abilities they used to be um so south africa only had one role-playing convention uh for 27 years it was the only convention that was of, of a national kind of level and the the gaming i just assumed that's what happened at every convention because that was the only one I'd ever been to. Mm -hmm. So when I went to the conventions in the States, I'm like, okay, where's the scorecard? They're like, <laughs> what? I'm like, well, I have to score my players and I have to score the DM because the DM scored the players and the players scored each other and then they scored the DM as well. And then uh, after the weekend, you were first place, second place, and third place. And uh, Wizards used to send down prizes. It's like, oh, here's, you know, limited edition player's handbook or this or that. Um, uh but yes, I haven't encountered that anywhere else in the world. And most times that I, I talk to people about it, they're like, what? How, how, how does this kind of work? Um, we did a, a thing on, on the channel two years ago, I think it was, or last year, where we used the scorecard and had, had developed our own kind of scorecard for, for DMs to come on, run a game, get their scores, but not to compete against each other because that's ridiculous as far as I'm concerned. But for them to sit back and go, you know what? I know my game is, is good. How do I improve my game? That's the tricky question to answer. So if you ask your friends, well, how, how can I improve my game, guys? They don't have very many reference points to talk to. Um, so the scorecard allows you to then look at that and go, okay, my NPC uh, descriptions scored lowly. So I now know in my next game, I need to describe the NPC a little bit more, or perhaps it's scored lowly. And when I ask the players, why do you score my NPC descriptions lowly? They're like, well, because each NPC we meet, you take 10 minutes to describe what they're wearing. We don't care that much. So we change the scorecard from being competitive to being something that you can use as a tool for yourself to align yourself and go, oh, okay, I can work on this point here. And, and we look at everything from table management to pacing to your narrative to your rules knowledge to try and make it a holistic kind of thing. So um, that's what we turned it into. But I haven't encountered competitive role-playing outside of South Africa. I don't know what it was or why they decided to do it <laughs> like that. South Africa decided they were going to find the best um, DMs out there. Yeah, absolutely. So what is this program? If someone sends you a video to be evaluated and 
you send it back or um it was called training grounds and you can find it on our youtube channel uh we ran it for a season um we're not sure if we'll run it again um, okay. simply because it was a lot of administration from our side yeah, we yeah, overcomplicated yeah. it in a, in a way yeah, yeah. um but basically a gm would apply and we'd give them uh, two dates because you'd have to come twice and we would send them a one sentence little write up saying it's an adventure about saving a king from a troll or whatever just so that there was a a single line of reference and then they had 90 minutes so it was a very short period of time to then run four players and myself through their game and in their game they had to have a social encounter they had to have a combat encounter and then they could have one other thing a puzzle or something so you've only got 30 minutes for each of those So your combat has to be very quick. And we I think we made it level 1 or level 3 characters. So you're not going to spend a large amount of time on combat. Um but it was to to try and help focus people so that they could they could see just how much pressure there is to run a game in 90 minutes. And then we would give the scores and then the DM would go away, they would be able to chat with me, I could give them some advice. uh on their score sheet in terms of okay well you know you scored lowly on your pacing because it did feel like we were trying to find the plot and then the game moved very very slowly or uh things along those lines then they would come back the week after play with different players and see if and 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 actually they had to identify what scores they were trying to improve beforehand so they couldn't say i'm improving all my scores because unfortunately there is no way to insta improve yourself as a dm it takes time and practice so they would say oh, i want to improve uh, my my world descriptions or my table management um and then at the end they get their new score and hopefully and i don't think we ever had it that a player came on because we ran for 12 episodes so 6 dms i don't think we ever had one of them who hadn't improved their score on the target thing that they were aiming for um which i thought was really really cool and really really useful uh for for advancing their skill and and that sort of thing so the template you can download the score sheet i think you still can uh from our website which is greatgamemaster.com and um yeah you can just give those out to your players they can score uh we usually do it anonymously because well they're your friends really and you kind of don't want them to to or maybe they don't want to reveal who they are um but as i say if you give these out to your players and your players mark you poorly across the board that is not an indicator that you are a bad dm that is an indicator that you are a dm who has room to grow wherever you so choose but at the same time if you feel like you are the forever dm it's also an opportunity to say guys these are my score sheets You've given me these scores. I appreciate that. I challenge any one of you to DM and let's see if you've got better scores because maybe there's a DM hiding in your party which just needs a little bit of encouragement to say, "Okay, well let me try." And then you you get their scores and they go, "Oh, my scores are pretty good. Maybe this is something that I should do." Uh the power of positive and reinforcement I think is really huge, especially when it comes to DMing. Um and I think there's often a culture that the dm gets lots of negative stuff oh the campaign was boring and everyone looks to the dm as it's the dm's fault or the adventure was dull and they look at the dm it's the dm's fault the dm is one of four or five people sitting at their table who's responsible for the game there are five other people there who are equally responsible uh but the mindset seems to be that it's just the dm's fault it isn't it is definitely not in 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 my opinion anyway Yeah, one of those things I've noticed is that I've DM'd for older, you know, 7, 8, 9 year players. Um and I've also DM'd for new players. And I've had way more fun or and maybe you've had the same experience, but I've had more fun seeing like the twinkling eyes of new players, you know, hitting this adventure for the first time, no rules lawyers are involved. Um and it just seems to be so much more fresh when you have brand new players who, you know, it's it's all it's all new to them and all fun. Um So what do you think about that and do you have a similar experience to that? 
absolutely the same experience, 100%. I love playing with new players simply because they are thinking up new solutions. They haven't necessarily watched other people. They haven't got bad habits from other groups. They are absolutely exploring this world uh, and the game system and the mechanics and that kind of stuff. And um, yes, 100% enjoy that. Um, with the older players, people know when they sit down at my table that, and they know this because I tell them, so whether they've played with me before or not, I am not someone who knows the rules backwards. If anyone at the table does, I will quite happily designate them as the rules lawyer or the rules keeper or the keeper of the rules, whatever you want to call them. I will ask them what the rule, official rule is, but I always reserve the right to change it because that's what it says in the Dungeon Master's Guide is that I have that right and they have to abide by that just as much as I have to abide by the rules. So if the jumping rule is this, or like my personal personal bugbear, the drowning rule, which I think is the stupidest rule ever invented. If it says that it's, you know, a minute per constitution modifier point, which I think is insane, but anyway, uh, then that's what it is. And I'm not gonna change it because that's what the rule is, unless it's our first game. And I sit down with people and say, hey guys, my house rule is the drowning rule. That's actually in 30 second increments. So you're not able to hold your breath for four minutes. You're able to hold your breath for two minutes if your constitution modifier is plus four, for example, or, 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 or things along those lines. So I think I'm at the age where I no longer take, uh, take any kind of grief from my players. If they go, oh, but that's not what the rule says. Okay, tell me what the rule is. Is, it, is that going to help the game is that does that make sense yes it does cool let's go with it absolutely great happy to happy to do that um and you know it, it, there is always a balance of course we're trying to play a game collectively together uh and and it's about also trying to have that understanding now if i uh, in my private games that i run i try to make sure that the culture of the people is the same in terms of gaming culture I don't care what their backgrounds are or their personal cultures are. It's a case of if everyone at the table is a rules lawyer, okay, cool, I need to up my game and I need to then live by those rules because the way they're enjoying the game is by using the rules and by, by, by making sure those rules are intact, that gives them a good framework to work from. But if I have people at my table who are far more interested in the role-playing aspect and they don't really mind about the rules so much, then I will make sure that the rules don't get in the way. So I'll try and keep the rules maybe not as, as, as rigidly reinforced or, you know, if I know that there's a rule on this particular thing, but at the time it's just going to get in the way, we won't apply that rule. And, and they know that that's the same thing. And, and so, and that's tricky. I played a game the other day where it was a, um, a charity game. I didn't have control over the players. And they sat down. I had four players who were really excited about the game, really, really what I would call your traditional role players. I had one player who just wanted to kill everything and set every building on fire because they thought it would be fun. And then I had another player who I don't think had ever played role-playing games but wanted to get into it but I feel like they really wanted to just play My Little Pony mm. uh, with rules rather than actual role-playing. So their responses were comical and, and, and ridiculous. And in those kind of situations, I don't have any choice. It's a charity game. I'm doing it for, 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 for their enjoyment. So it's trying to then go, okay, well, the murder hobo who wants to burn everything down, I can't say no, you cannot burn down the town hall but as the DM, I know that everybody else doesn't want you to do that. So I can say, sure, but you're going to need a bonfire and you're going to need 50 torches and you're going to need at least an hour to get this flame going. And there are guards patrolling around the edges of the walls who can see pretty much. So, yeah, that, that's my best advice is try and manage that. But if it's over long term, change your table get to get other people around who, who are in the same mindset yeah it tends to be a fine line between things and just to give an example of this um uh, at my home game i got very fortunate in that all the all my friends that agreed to play together 
Um, relatively new players, even though some played before, they nobody wanted to DM, so I, I did get the chance to DM. And um, the first five sessions were rough, but after that we started having fun. We developed what we liked as a group and what I thought as a DM the game should be. And, you know, I went standard array for my stats because it just makes sense. I mean, I why do anything else, in my opinion? And I made the game really hard, and, you know, if their characters died because they did something stupid, I didn't care about that, to be honest. I wasn't trying to kill the characters by any means, but um, we played, like, a harder-fought game. Um, and then when I got into the online community, um, you know, people were saying that, you know, I, you know, I don't want it to be necessarily super hard. Um, you know, I, I want to min-max and do these things that um, I, in my home game, never believed in doing because it didn't make sense to me. It's not what the game was about for me. Um, so then I had a gut check as a DM and I thought, oh, you know what? Maybe I'm looking at this wrong. And if people want to min max, everybody does it and that's 100% okay. So I, you know, I had like a gut check myself and I thought, you know, maybe I need to reevaluate myself as a DM and what I've been doing. Um, have you noticed that as a DM and what are your thoughts on that? Um, the long and short of it is if I am with a group who are min maxing, um, I can DM that group, I think, really well, um, simply because I've been in that experience where I've done sort of mini campaigns. Um, I cannot play in a min-max game as a player. Um, I learned that very, very quickly uh, because I'm not good at optimizing characters. I don't build them very often. Um, so when everyone else around you has got plus 20 and you've got plus five because you took cooking, because, well, that's part of the character's backstory, uh, you know, you're, you're at a serious disadvantage. But as, as a GM, yeah, it, it's not about being wrong. It's just about realizing that it's a different type of game that you're playing. Uh, and, and I kind of look at it and I go, you know, it's, it's, uh, you, you adapt ever so slightly by just making sure that if it is to be a min-max game, you are using what resources are given to you for that. Because I think their design approach is very much about looking at, at the perfect paladin build. Okay, what is the monster that will fight that? What is the this and, and how do those monsters do it? It is definitely a mind shift. Um, as the GM, you, you suddenly kind of, are forced to run these creatures in a, in a very sort of methodical way. Something that I do, and you mentioned Descent into Avernus, uh, when um, originally it was Watsy got hold of me and said, hey, please please run this game for us on Twitch, I said to them, you know, I don't do pre-written material. Um, I have never been to Neverdeep or Neverwinter or to, to Baldur's Gate. I, I, I have never read those books. Um, so I'll be making it my own. And they went, that's absolutely fine. One of the things that I, I, I do without even a question is that I will have the monster uh, manual open. But if you're playing in my game, you will never know what monster it actually is because I completely reskin them. And I do that so that my min-maxes are not going, oh, it's a troll, so we have to use fire, we have to do this, we have to do that. Mm -hmm. That's not putting them at a disadvantage that's saying, guys, your metagame has to stay outside of the game. Your characters are going to be fighting this thing. They have no idea what it is. It looks like a troll because it lived under the bridge, but I'm actually using the stats of a rhinoceros because I like the impact damage uh, or I like the this or I like the that. So I guess that's, that's one of the ways that I do that. Um, what I have found interesting is that there's your min-maxes, there's your storytellers, there's your people who want to build their own stories, and that all changes depending on where you are in the world as well. So if I'm role-playing with South Africans, it's a very different kind of game to if I'm role-playing with folks from Germany or if I'm role-playing with Americans or if I'm role-playing with uh, people from Japan or from Canada or from Northern Europe. It's a very different dynamic as well. And it's, it's, it's so different that sometimes... I walk away from the table going, I hate these people. I absolutely hate the game. Why do I hate the game so much? They're doing, you know, and then you, and then I've been always very lucky. People have gone, well, actually, if you understand this culture, 
they will say exactly what they think because that's how they have been raised or they will say this or they will do this or they won't say this or they won't say that. And then you go, oh, so did they actually enjoy the game? Yes, they had an absolute blast. You're like, really? I thought they hated it because <laughs> um, they were all saying, no, no, they, they enjoyed it because they were telling you the mistakes because they wanted you to realize that you could fix those mistakes in the next game. But they wouldn't have told you anything if they hadn't had a good time in the first place. You're like, why is it so confusing? <laughs> uh, but an absolute pleasure to, you know, so anyway. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to ask you on your thoughts on, um, I always use the term um, a real DM, but, but what I mean is an experienced DM. How come an experienced DM inevitably switches from modules over to their own campaigns. Um, I'm guilty of this. Obviously, you've done it. Um, what is it about leaving modules and creating your own world that's so appealing? I think the the lure of running a D&D game, if you're using modules, they're great because they do a whole bunch of stuff for you that you don't have to worry about. Um, all you have to do is remember stuff um, as opposed to creating stuff. I feel, though, that once you have been DMing for a while, you get to a point where you're like, yeah, I like um, the Sword Coast, or I like Avernus, or I like um, coming up um, oh, uh, Greyhawk. I like those kind of, of spaces, but they're not mine. And I want to express or I want to explore my own creativity and have the players kind of sit back and, wow, this is such a cool world. I want to play in it. I want to be there, et cetera, et cetera. Like the, the map behind me, which is a map of, of Braxia, which was a world I created 20 years ago, I still to this day have people going, oh, I want to play in Braxia. And I'm like, well, I created that because I had bronchitis and I couldn't actually go to work for a week. <laughs> um, and I wanted to make a world that had all the cultures in it that I really, really enjoyed. Um, and so that's what it was. And, and, and people go, well, that's cool. I want to explore that. No one else has been there. Uh, we'll be the first ones there. So there is that definitely that, that novelty, but it, it, it's also a case of going, well, everything that you think you knew, you now have to relearn. So it's almost like trying to make old players become like those new shiny players who are exploring the world going, oh my God, that's amazing. Um, so it's a little bit of an ego trip, I definitely think. But at the same time, it's also about you taking that next step as a, as a DM going, this is what I can create. Uh, and it's pretty damned awesome. Um, yeah, I think the inevitable turn for DM is, is always going away from modules and creating their own world. Um, there was one subject I wanted to, to touch on, and um, I saw a video of yours, and you know, I'm not going to lie, I was, I was literally crying when, when I was watching the video um and to to break the scene down <clears throat> for everybody who doesn't know um you went to your, your your university uh you know college for the americans who are watching this and you had a situation where you had to explain something to a table of D players before you played like it was a very it was a point for you to explain it to them can you talk about that explanation and what what that was exactly um, because me, I'm married with, you know, children. I don't have the same experience as you. I grew up as a, a jock, you know. It's been really easy for me to transition into D&D, but, but there's a, a specific situation for you that might have been different, and, and it's actually a really powerful thing. So could, if you wouldn't mind, could you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I, uh, you're quite right. It was, I was at college, um, and I had moved to a new town, so I'd moved away from that little town that I was in, and I'd been invited to this game, and I was, I was still, I was, what, 18, 19 years old, um, but I decided that I needed to be truthful to who I was as a person, and that was, be, that was as a gay man. I had to, to acknowledge that and to accept my homosexuality. Now, this was in the late 90s, in 1991, so seven years before that, the country was still doing forced conversion therapy uh, 
with with electroshock conversion therapy or and this is something that's only sort of um, really been explored recently gender reassignment and you didn't have a choice so you had your community kind of going oh my god if you're a, if you're a gay man there is a secret service that will come and take you away and will either convert you or simply turn you into a woman uh, so very, very oppressive kind of nature. But I felt that we had transitioned, the government, the new government had come in, which was a liberal government, very democratic, very inclusive government. And I was like, you know what, I have to be truthful to myself at some point in my life. And role playing is such an important space for me. It's where I really get to, to shine and to run my games and to explore and have fun, why should I not be who I am? And it, it was weird. I still can't explain why exactly I was so adamant that I wanted them to, to know that I was a gay man before I joined their table. Um, and it was, for me, that was kind of like my test. If they had said no, I probably would have remained in the closet for a lot longer. Because I would have been like, oh, okay, uh, it's not, it's not okay. I can't use this in my hobby type of thing. And yet, they all said yes. They didn't give a damn. Um, we went and we played, and we played together for fifteen years after that uh, as very, very good friends. But it was a major learning for me uh, to to realize that yes, we're here because we're playing a game. We don't really care what's 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 going on elsewhere. Uh, but then to have that kind of support. And so over the years, I've had people who have been in my game and afterwards came to me and said, would you mind if I came to your game wearing a blouse next week? This was a, a gentleman at the time. I was like, I don't care what you wear. Just come and play the game. We need you to you know, do the thing with the, the lock or the puzzle or whatever. And then over the next sort of four or five months, it was a blouse and it was a dress. We're like whatever you're wearing, you're not naked, so that's fine. Um, uh, great. Um, and eventually they actually embraced their transition and have done a full transition now and done a complete gender change uh, to, to, to their right gender and, and are having and uh, living a great life. And you're going, all of that just because I said, yes, you can sit at my table, that's, that's amazing that you can improve someone's life in real life as much as, as giving them gold and treasure and XP and stuff. Um, so I've always had that motto. And um, I, I do not think and do not say for a moment that if you sit down at my table, that there will be only gay characters running around and NPCs that are going to try and, uh, you know, convert characters or anything along those lines. You will run around my world you will meet NPCs that you know my system, I'm making up as you're meeting them. And sometimes the male character might only be interested in other male characters. Sometimes the female character is interested in a female character. Um, I was running a game at D&D in a castle a couple of weeks ago. My players came up with the big bad, um, the big monster, I had just said it's an undead lich. They decided that the undead lich was actually a female. And I went, okay, cool. I, I didn't, it's whatever. Um, and that they then linked another female to this as a big love interest. I'm like, sure, I can have, you know, <laughs> a, a lesbian power couple of liches trying to take over the world. That's brilliant. That's great. I didn't come up with my players came up with it. Mm -hmm. And it made it such a stronger game rather than going, oh, no, 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 we don't talk about that, we don't include that. But um, I always say inclusivity doesn't mean exclusivity. So have, have whatever in your game. Don't just try and have one of everything or force anything onto anybody or anything along those lines. It, it, to me, it makes the game richer if the world in the game is similar to the world outside of the game. Um, but I, I, again, I ask everyone at my table, are there any taboos? Are there any phobias? Are there any fears? I had one player who didn't want me to include mayonnaise in the game because he's highly allergic to mayonnaise. I was like, cool, no mayonnaise. And then another was like, I don't want sex in the game. I'm like, great, we'll fade to black. So no sex and no mayonnaise. I mean, this game is amazing, right? 
D and D in a castle. I've seen some of this. Um, are you a DM for D and D in a castle? Then yes, um, I was very fortunate to to play um, in March this year, and then I will be back again at D and D in a castle in October for actually two of their their sessions because they run like eight sessions a year. So they got me in session six and session eight. Um, and what an experience that is! Uh, you know, you're you're literally locked inside a castle for three days, and you just have to play D and D. And you go, "Wow, that's tough." Uh, <laughs> so yeah, we uh, we have a lot of fun there. I must admit. I wanted to ask you this uh, last question before we wrap it up. Uh, I know you got other things to do, um, and I always ask this last question. And if those of us watching and those of us in role playing degenerates are level one, then uh, guy here is a level twenty uh, in the realm of seniority. Um, but looking forward, you know, in the future, where do you see yourself in uh, with D and D? Or you know tabletop RPGs, whatever you want to say, in five, ten, and fifteen years. Aye, that's an easy answer. Still playing it, uh, whatever it might be. Um, whether it's it's D and D six, well, it will be in ten years' time. I, there was no doubt about that. Um, it'll be D and D six. Will I be someone who's going? Oh, I don't know. I hate. Why they bring out a new system? I think this time I won't be. I did with 3.5. I didn't want them to go to 4. Uh, this time, though, I think 5th edition has explored a lot of the space. I would be very interested to see what 6th edition uh, comes up with in terms of streamlining. But yes, I will definitely be role-playing. You know, uh, my partner's a role-player. I'm a role-player. Uh, it's, it's something that is just an amazing thing to do. Um, and unless something really drastic happens, I get to do it all over the planet. And that's even better because then I can sit down with a table of complete strangers and go, let's play some D&D and then we play and, and, and get to experience life. So definitely still playing, um, as, as I, as I have been threatening to do, um, you know, I've written a couple books, but they are, are educational books. My next goal is to write a novel and it's not for commercial purposes. It's just, it's like you have, you have created so many worlds and been part of so many stories. The next step is writing a novel. Um, so that's, that's hopefully if we speak again in five years time, that will already have happened by 10 years time. If it hasn't yet happened, uh, I will be promising that it will happen in the next 10. I will 100% be uh, getting that book and reading it. Um, you said it's out on PDF, or is that is that out for the public yet? That's right. So it drops for the public, I think, at the end of May um, on our website. So everything is, is accessible through our website. So that's www.greatgamemaster.com. And uh, you can find the new book. The new book is The Practical Guide to Becoming a Great GM. And we use the term GM just because it's not just D&D, it's Cthulhu and sure, Pathfinder sure, yeah. and all those other ones as well. Um, <laughs> but it is, it's like 250 pages of step-by-step, -step, this is what you kind of need to develop, this is what you need to look at, this is how you create things on the fly, this is how you make maps, how you make your own homebrew, but also how do you work with modules. But what I, I really focus on, because it is a practical guide, is that at the end of every chapter or sub-chapter, there are actually exercises that you are challenged to do. You earn experience points, obviously, if you actually complete them. And if you complete all of the exercises in the book at the very end, it actually says, hey, you've scored this many experience points. That means you are probably a a uh, very good GM or you are next, you're, you're, you're ready for your next game or maybe you should go back and do some more exercises because <laughs> you haven't got enough XP yet. Uh, it's not to say that you have to have all of that experience points. It's just a fun way of encouraging you to kind of go through the process. But if you do go through the process, by the time you finish with the book, you actually have your first campaign ready to go, uh, which I think is quite fun. Um, so, yeah, that drops... Um, as a PDF, the physical copy of the book will only be available in October. Um, 
shipping and printing is stuff that we have no control over, sadly. But yes, so uh, all of that from our website. And if you just type in Great GM into YouTube, uh, I come up somewhere. Uh, we've done enough videos now to get that that privilege. <laughs> so before we get off here, I, w- I wanted to tell the audience that role playing degenerates and our following is is you know ten about ten thousand on TikTok, some people on Twitch here and there, but it's relatively just starting. Um, I literally I cold emailed guy from a message on maybe his website or something. I'm not entirely sure. But for those of you who don't know, he answered the cold email and said he would do this interview, no questions asked. Now, How to Be a Great GM has a quarter of a million followers on YouTube. And, you know, guys worked for Wizards of the Coast. He's been doing this for 30 years. He's won how many DM competitions out there in South Africa. Um, he's royalty when it comes to D&D. And he still took the time to talk to just, you know, a fan out there who... Um, happens to be starting something similar, so that's just it. Uh, it just shows to it shows you how good of a guy guy is, and it shows you you know how awesome you are. So I, I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. It means a lot. My absolute pleasure. I really, really, I love the game and anyone who plays it. So absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yep. Thanks, 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 thanks for being on. All, right. All right. I'll see I'll you guys, see you guys later. later. Bye, guy. Bye, guy.